Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. How we doing, everybody? Great to see you. Great to see you as well, whether you're joining us on the other side of that camera or, or one of the wonderful smiling faces that are in front of me right now. I'm glad you've joined us. Hope you guys are finding time to get away. Who's been on vacation already? Sorry, the lights are a little bright here this morning. I'm having a little, okay, I got a few hands up. Yep, glad to see you're getting away. I know even in the, the really unusual world we're living in, there's things you can't get away from, but at least you're able to get away. Amen. And it's so great uh, to see all of you here. I am so, so, so excited to begin a series on prayer this morning entitled In This Way. You say, Pastor, where did that title come from? Well, it came from Jesus who said to us in the passage that was read to us by Pastor David at the outset of our time together, when you pray, pray in this way. Why is that important? Because if we do it the way Jesus told us to do it, we're going to get the effects that Jesus promised. And I don't know that I've ever lived through a time where we needed that more. One of the things I love about living in this country uh, having been on, on four other continents, is that we are an incredibly proactive people. I have to tell you, I love that. I've been in other places, particularly in the third world, where they don't even look at the weather report in the morning. They just get up, and if it's a tsunami that wipes out an entire village, they just kind of watch it happen, and then they go, okay, what's next? And that's not necessarily wrong. There are other things about those cultures that we could certainly learn something from. But, but personally, as somebody who likes to prepare, likes to plan, kind of likes to know if it's possible what's next, living permanently in a culture like that would just drive me insane. So I love that we have a fire department, a police department, other kinds of departments around us in civil society that have protocols. They know what to do. They've been trained what to do. When my oldest son spent a summer considering the United States Coast Guard Academy, one of the reasons we learned that they haze you is not just so they can beat you up and give you a hard time. It's because if a torpedo hits your boat at 2 a.m., you ain't got time to cry. Amen? You've got to react. And so I love that in this culture, we try as best we can to prepare for every eventuality. Now, here's the liability of that, though. It is when we get so settled, so comfortable, that we decide, you know what? We can plan for anything and everything. And then in the church, it can get to this level. We are prepared for everything, even in the church. We can answer everything with protocol, with a rule, with a reaction, with people knowing what to do. And we're big on that around here. But what we don't want to do is become so complacent in those kinds of things that we leave behind dependency on God. Because I'll tell you what will happen, in case you haven't noticed, churches, organizations will get to that point, and then we'll have a year like 2020. And we won't know what to do because we will discover in moments like that no amount of protocol gives us all the answers we need. No amount of knowing how we're going to react can prepare us for things we did not see coming. I think now is just a perfect time for us to look at the subject of prayer. 
because for too long, it's been a last resort. I have a, a pastor, dear pastor friend of mine, Paul Andrews, over in Finksburg, Maryland, just north of Eldersburg, and he used to joke around when we would meet for a meal, and I would say, all right, well, I guess we should pray over this, and he would chuckle and say, has it come to that? And what he meant by that was it was kind of a joke back on our propensity to think that, you know, this is sort of a last resort. Like, we'll try the protocol, we'll try the response, we'll try this, we'll try that. If nothing else works, then in desperation, we'll call out to God. So let me tell you something about, about prayer that is so wickedly ironic in a culture like ours. The first is that it is indeed, it's not just one of the most powerful things we can do. Even in a non-2020 kind of environment, it is the most powerful thing we can do. Listen to some of these encouraging words in James chapter 5. We're told, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them. Now, <laughs> go to the doctor, go to the hospital if you need it. Don't be a fool, okay? God has given us in the natural order a lot of things. But what does he say to do first? Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Look further at John chapter 14. These are the words of Jesus himself. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And by the way, this isn't just a New Testament concept. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament. We read, for example, in the 107th Psalm, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Prayer is the most powerful thing we can do. What makes that a wicked irony? Well, it's the second thing. Oftentimes, even in the church, we are both ignorant of prayer and reticent to pray. And there's several different reasons for that. I, I imagine for some of us, it has to do with intimidation. We don't know quite how to do it. Recent poll said that 8 out of 10 people, this was pre-COVID, so I imagine this number has done nothing but go up, 8 out of 10 claim to pray on a regular basis. 73% said they believe praying can help them. So the problem apparently is not that we don't believe in prayer. It's what we believe about prayer. And I've covered this before here at Covenant, but I think it bears repeating uh, that there are four primary misunderstandings of prayer. The first is prayer as a spare tire. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, again, if the protocol doesn't work, then I'll fall back on this. That spare tire that's attached to the back of your SUV or up underneath, why do they put those things in such inconvenient places? You, you know why? It's because it's a last resort. You don't even think about that thing. You don't, even, you don't even wonder how much air's in that sucker until you're going down the road and you run over something and then all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. you're like, whoa, I'm in trouble now. Prayer is a spare tire. This is a view of prayer that says, prayer is my way of running to God when my life apart from him hasn't worked out quite like I thought it would. Isaiah 55 reminds us, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Don't wait until you're in a crisis and then wonder where he is. Number two, 
Some people see prayer as a microwave meal. Now, I love microwaves. I cooked my breakfast in a microwave this morning. Turkey bacon. I know. Forgive me. It's an abomination. I'm trying to eat healthier, okay? And so, in the microwave, microwaves are great, but you don't want everything out of the microwave, do you? Everything, if everything you get that you put into your digestive system comes out of a microwave or the drive through window, you're not going to live very long. That's simply a fact for most of us. And if you view prayer this way, you're viewing prayer as a fast-track solution to your long-term problem. I got this issue that rose up. I'm not going to examine the roots of it. I'm not going to consider the fact that maybe this has been years and years in the making, but I'm going to pray. And if in a day or so it doesn't fix it, I'm going to conclude that God isn't listening. Listen to these words from Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Some of you are praying for patience and wondering why you're having to wait so long. And it's because I love you, but you're not very bright. This is how God teaches us these things, right? Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Don't treat prayer like a microwave meal. Thirdly, don't, don't treat prayer like a, a Christmas wish list, all right? When my kids, when they were younger and they would come to me, and I'm talking, they may as well have put a Mercedes Benz on the list. All kinds of things. And I'm just like, you guys know that we're a one-income family, right? You, you, you understand. No, they really don't. Um, and here's God with unlimited resources, but the, t- t- the temptation is to come to him like you're sitting on Santa's lap. This has become especially popular with the Word of Faith movement in this country that teaches you that if you're a believer, you ought to always be happy, you ought to always have good health, you ought to always, never have any money problems, and if you do, it's just because you haven't asked in the right way, you haven't plugged in the right formula, you haven't used the right words. Well, James tells us the following. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So don't view prayer like a Christmas wish list. Don't view prayer like a microwave meal. Don't view prayer like a spare tire. Uh, Fourthly, don't view prayer as a presidential pardon. That's a way of saying I can do anything I want. I can live however I want. I can say anything I want. I don't know. Should Should I put in an extra plug here about social media? I understand that in this country you have the right to say anything you want, but I also understand that under the Lord Jesus, you may not be permitted to say certain things. Take that one for free. I can do what I want. I can say what I want. And then then I'll just get forgiveness for it. This is something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote a book in 1937, while he was simultaneously partaking in a plot to have Adolf Hitler assassinated, phenomenal background of a Lutheran pastor, and we're going to study that book together this fall. You're going to get that uh, contacted about that probably within the next couple of weeks, an opportunity to sign up for that class. I'm going to personally teach that here on campus. If you feel like you need to stay at home, we can bring you in through Zoom. That We're going to have multiple ways for you to engage us on that. But Bonhoeffer referred to this kind of disposition. He called it cheap grace. It's cheap. It assumes that you can live however you want without consequences. Ezekiel warned the Babylonian exiles about this kind of presumption, and they shall return their lewdness upon you, and you shall bear the iniquity of your sinful idolatry, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Are you saying, that, Pastor, that, that God won't forgive me? No, he absolutely will. Am I saying you're going to escape the temporal consequences of what you've done? No, I'm not. Sometimes you have to. And so when you think of prayer in this way, 
use the spare tire, but you still feel far from God. You fire up the microwave, but it doesn't happen as quickly as you'd like, and so you feel betrayed. You bring Santa Claus your list, and the Lord God of heaven looks at it and goes, I don't think so. Or you sin with impunity and you still suffer the consequences of your sin. If you view prayer in any of those ways and you behave in any of those ways, obviously your conclusion is going to be prayer must not work. There must be something wrong with it. That's a failed prayer life. And it's a direct result of not believing what God says to us about this powerful exercise. Uh, the late Samuel Chadwick said the following, and I think we ought to pay heed to this because even as we want to, to move away from these errant understandings of what prayer is and what its purpose is, we want to hold tightly to what prayer actually is. Chadwick said the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing of prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil that, that would include our protocol, mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. So why don't we do it? Why is it the hardest thing in the world to get people to? I mean, even in the middle of COVID-19, we could have a night of worship out here, which we're going to have. Proper social distancing and all that kind of thing, and have and just have all kinds of people show up. You know, listen, we're going to talk to the Lord God of Heaven together. Why is that the hardest meeting to call in a church? I think there's probably several reasons, but the two predominant ones are number one, there's a misunderstanding. There's a trust that that's coupled with in our own abilities, but secondly, I think we're intimidated by it. I think we're intimidated by it. And I think maybe the reason for that is we ourselves have a false understanding. We're going to look at, at verses 9 through 13, but I first want you to look at verses 5 to 7 before, because before Jesus teaches us how to pray, he teaches us how not to pray. He says, when you pray, do not, it's interesting to start with a, with a negative command, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Some of you, that's the only kind of prayer you ever saw growing up as a kid. You saw people get up and use these and thous and thithers. They had their subjects and predicates in the right place. They were highly eloquent, right? And you thought, well, I guess that's what it is. No, it, it, you don't do this in an effort to impress other people. Secondly, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. All right? Chanting over and over and over the same things. This is what the prophets of Baal did on Mount Carmel with Elijah. They go up top. They cut themselves, they march around, they pray, they call out to their gods. There's no answer. Well, first of all, there's no answer because the God they pray to doesn't exist. But beyond that is this idea that somehow if I use the right words, if I chant. And so today we have a lot of people, I'm going to say probably especially a lot of men who refuse to pray. And, and guys, you should be leading your families in this. Do you know how much by double digits your 
your, the chances are that your sons and daughters will become men and women of prayer if you pray with them compared to when mom prays with them. And I'm thankful that mom prays with them. And, and when I talk to a lot of guys, when we finally get past the facade of it, they're like, I just, I don't do this as good as my wife does. Well, of course you don't. She's smarter than you. I'm married to a woman that's smarter than me. It took me seven years of graduate and postgraduate education to be able to even keep up with her. I don't remember the last time I won an argument with that woman. Of course they're better at this than us. That's no excuse for you disobeying who God called you to be in your home. God doesn't expect. So if you're a guy and you don't pray because of this, you're essentially saying, well, I can't pray as good as the prophets of Baal. Well, their prayers weren't worth the crap anyway. Jesus says, don't pray. Like, don't have pagan understandings of what prayer is. Don't confuse eloquence with power. They're two different things. They're two different things. I, I can't pray in that way. Jesus isn't the least bit interested in you praying that way. So, well, how does he want me to pray? I'm glad you asked that question. Let's take a look, beginning with this. Jesus says when we pray, we want to pray with power. We begin first by praying for the glory of God. And by the way, there are four things here that over the next several weeks we're going to unpack in a much, much deeper way. Today we're just kind of hitting the tips of the icebergs, so you don't want to miss the, the ensuing weeks beyond this. Pray for the glory of God. Look at verses 9 and 10 of Matthew 6. Pray then like this. Okay, he's already told us how not to pray. Now he's going to tell us this is what this involves. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when I was a high school football player in the Bible Belt of South Carolina, we all got together both before and after the game, and we recited this together. If that, that wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but if that's exclusively your view of what this means, you need to get that out of your head. Because that's not what's going on here. There's a couple of things happening here. The first is that Jesus is telling us, whatever words we use, whether your subjects and predicates line up or not, however eloquent you may or may not be, you begin every prayer with a praise for the holiness and the hollowness and the distinctiveness of the God that you pray to. Hallowed be your name. That's not a wish. God, I wish you were holy. God, I hope that you are who I mean. Th this is a holy declarative statement of divine truth, and it's where every prayer ought to start, a confession of my redeemed soul that I know who my God is. And that's significant because before you can pray, it's a pretty good idea to understand who you're talking to, right? I was teaching at an undergraduate institution maybe 15, 20 years ago, I was at a preview weekend where a lot of high school seniors were coming in. They were taking a look at the institution, and I happened to be standing right next to the president of this institution when this young lady walks up, 18 years old, salutatorian, I think she was. I don't remember everything she said, but she, she rattled off her resume verba, verbally in about three, four minutes, and all the things that she's done, and all the things that she's accomplished, and, and, and all the things she was looking for in a school, and... And in, in the moment there, I was actually able to introduce myself as a member of the faculty, but, but right maybe five minutes in, maybe a little bit longer, I don't know, it felt like an hour, but she finally looked at the president of the institution and she goes, oh, by, by the way, what do you do here? 
really unassuming man, thankfully. He just said, well, it's whatever's needed. I do whatever's needed. Sometimes I clean toilets. You ever done that with somebody? And like embarrassed yourself because you didn't realize who you were talking to? You ever done that with God? How many times do we do that with God when we go to our knees and we begin to pray and we forget? That's the wrong way to begin prayer. I begin not with my problems, not with my complaints, not with my resume, not with my eloquence, but by centering myself mentally and spiritually on who it is I'm about to address. Because he's your father. He loves you. He longs for you to come, but he's also your father. Don't forget who you're talking to. This is a prayer to a holy God. So there is a praise for his holiness. Secondly, there is a desire for his rule. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Notice how this precedes he, there's not, when he says pray in this, we haven't gotten any requests yet. We're not talking about anybody's cancer. We're not talking about anybody's divorce. We're not, we haven't got it. We're going to get there. Those things are important to the Lord. You want those things addressed effectively. You got to get the, you got to get the cart back behind the horse. And you start with this, your kingdom come. Now, in some sense, that's prayed with a view of the end. Uh, I believe, and you don't have to agree with me on this, we have all sorts of views in front of me about the end of the age, but I happen to believe that there is a literal kingdom coming to earth. Um, but the more immediate focus is not that kingdom. It's not that that kingdom is going to become the destiny of the world, I mean, let's just be honest. God's a sovereign God. That's going to happen whether I pray for it or not. He's coming. It's the essence of this is that that same kingdom would be the desire of my heart. So as I focus on who I'm talking to, I'm simultaneously starting to align very early in my time with him, my prayer with his. It is so critically important as we start. And by the way, this will get another kind of an, I don't know why, I, this isn't in my note. I hadn't even thought about this until just now. I don't know why I feel compelled to speak to men this morning specifically. To my sisters in Christ, I beg your indulgence. I'm not at all saying that you're unimportant in this. But in my experience, it has been that men struggle with this the most. I think one reason, again, is because they think they've, they've got to get the sentence structure right. Like God's more concerned about grammar than he is about your heart. The other thing I think that happens with men is they don't center themselves in who they're talking to, okay? Most of the time, the reason men don't worship Jesus or the reason men are reticent to follow Jesus is because Jesus is not presented as he is in the Bible, but too many evangelical churches present him as though you'd be able to take him in a bar fight. And you can't. You can't. I'm going to focus on this man who defeated overwhelmingly death, hell, and the grave. This powerful king and warrior. And I am going to submit myself to him. I'm going to align myself with what he wants. We have got to get this part right before you ask for anything complain about anything beg for anything you and i set our hearts in the right place by remembering who we're speaking to what does that look like to first before anything else 
pray for the glory of God. This time next Sunday, we're going beneath the surface on that one. So I hope you'll be with us. Secondly, pray for the favor of God. And this too involves a couple of aspects. The first is for provision. Give us this day our daily bread. I hate this verse. And I'm going to tell you why. It's because I'm a planner. I'm a protocol guy. I want to know how to react. I want to know what to do. I want to know what all my options are. I want my decision tree out there. So when I see coming day, I'll just be honest with you, there's a part of your pastor's soul that is selfish that wants to know, how about at least the coming month? How about that? I mean, if everything that's happened in 2020 has taught us anything, it has taught us this, has it not? You can't plan anything anymore, okay? Some of you who've been on vacation are like, man, that was hard. That's the hardest vacation I've ever been on in my life. We planned it, then we had to cancel it, then we had to replan it, then we had... God has us at a point... At which, boy, if we just stop with the nonsense of when are we going to get back to normal and live right here and right now where God has called us to live and listen for what he's trying to teach us, we would come out, and we will come out of this, but we would come out of this so much more powerful if we'd just be faithful. And so give me this daily bread. I, I, what am I saying? I'm, I'm, I, I've already established who he is. I've aligned my will as best I can with his. Now I'm recognizing that my trust is in him to supply every need I have. What kind of warriors would we raise up if mamas and daddies, when they go to their knees, would emphasize in their prayers, God, we are nothing without you. We have nothing without you. We are depending on you. That trust is in him alone. It's in him alone. Think conversely about what might happen to your trust level if, um, if God suddenly appeared to you and gave you what you wanted, gave me what I wanted. All right, Pastor. Joel, here's, here's, the, here's the next 12 months. You're going to be able to pay your mortgage. You're going to be able to send your kid back to college. You're going to be able to do this. You're going to be able to do it. It's all been planned out. It's good. You're secure. Don't worry. If my level of anxiety were dependent on that, what would it not be dependent upon? What do you think would happen to my faith? I know. You don't want to think that kind of stuff about your pastor, do you? But it's true of all of us, isn't it? We're human. What would happen to the faith of any person most of the time, I just plan. Why? Because I'm, my propensity now is to start trusting in all that stuff that I know is coming rather than a God I know never changes. So I'm praying for his provision so that I can develop a level of trust. Listen, when I go to him for all these other issues that we go to him for, wouldn't you rather go with that level of trust? Here's the other thing that he's going to provide. Forgiveness that is commensurate with our capacity to forgive others. He says in verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So forgive me of my sins, but it comes in conjunction with the capacity to forgive others. That one's coming. So we're going to talk about provision in two weeks. 
We're going to talk about this particular thing in three weeks. I'm going to tell you why. It deserves its own category. In fact, Jesus has this whole parable that we're going to be looking at in Matthew chapter 18. I'll give you the Cliff's Notes version at this point. A king brought in a debtor who owed him 10,000 talents. The king had compassion on that debtor and forgave him. Because when you go to debtor's prison in the ancient world, you go until the debt is paid. The only problem is when you're in prison, you can't work, therefore you can't make money. So being in debt in the ancient world, once you went to prison, it carried a life sentence. That's kind of like hell. And so Jesus uses that to compare and to correlate to that spiritual reality. The king had compassion, forgave him of the entire debt, and immediately this man goes out and he finds a slave who owes him a hundred denarii. So imagine, if you're wondering, what, how, how does that even compute in the modern world? Well, imagine that your bank called you tomorrow and whatever your mortgage balance is, they just said it's at zero. You don't owe anything else. And you immediately went out and found someone and had them prosecuted because they owe you too much rent. That's what he's talking about here, okay? And so the result of that is the king heard this, was enraged by it, brought this man back in, had him rearrested and thrown in jail. And, and here's the principle. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 35, so shall my heavenly father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Effective prayer does two things. It relieves my anxiety because it brings me to a place of complete trust in a God who never changes and who has always been faithful to me. The second thing it does is it relieves my animosity because the forgiveness that God has shown me, all the things he has forgiven me of that empower me to show mercy to others. You know what I've discovered? It's not just hard, it's impossible. It is impossible to sincerely pray for God to bless and or heal. We cannot do it. When we forgive others, we let go of grudges. That's a sign that we're trusting in the Lord for all things. That's when we know we're praying effectively. So we're going to learn. What does it mean next week to pray for the glory of God? The week after that, for the provision of God. The week after that, for further provision of God. The week after that, the holiness of God. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now that may cause some confusion if you're familiar with Scripture, and you know that texts like James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what does this mean? Well, it means... Lord, don't permit me to be attracted to things that are unpleasing to you. Take away my desire for sin and rebellion against you. Now, i got to tell you, once you've actually centered your heart on God as he is, once you have set your priorities on his kingdom, Jesus told us in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. You concentrate on my kingdom. You concentrate on loving your neighbor. You concentrate on taking care of the things I told you to take care of, and I will take care of you. I'll take care of you. So once you get your trust completely in that provision, you're not going to want to desire sin and rebellion. And one of the ways we know that too many who, who claim to follow Jesus don't have effective prayer lives is because there's too many people 
you don't need anybody to lead you into temptation. You're doing a really good job leading yourself there. Can we just admit that to each other? Maybe you should look at your neighbor right now and go, well, it may not be true for me, but I know it's true for you. <laughs> we are there. Some of y'all should take a Facebook fast for about a month. You don't want to, look, you, 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 because you, you can't help yourself, right? You can't help yourself. Like a drunk goes into a bar and he can't just have one or two. He's got to get, he's got to get drunk. Some of you, you can't just walk into a social media space. You've got to get nasty. This part of Jesus' model prayer is intended to illustrate how we fight those kinds of temptations on our knees. And it's precisely why we know too many people don't take prayer seriously. Because they live however they want, and then when they fall into sin, what do we hear? God, help me. Well, that's not real prayer. Because real prayer begins way before that and says, don't let, don't let me go there. God, would you keep me from that place? Because temptation can only have victory if you allow it to. Only if you allow it to. Uh, I can't remember who the financial advisor was. It wasn't Dave Ramsey because he doesn't think you ought to have these things to begin with, but it was someone who said, if you're going to use a credit card, you should only use it in emergencies. And it's actually something that Amy and I have told to people who have issues with, I, I don't know, I'll start spending with it and it just gets out of, out of hand, and, but, but I kind of need it for this or for that. I fly a lot. I need it for, you know, when I, if there's emergency travel or something like that. And so this is what we've told them using this financial advisor's advice, freeze it. Take that credit card, freeze it so that it's in a block of ice in your freezer. If there's a situation and you think you're going to need it in an emergency, take it out of the freezer, put it on the kitchen counter. If by the time it's melted, the emergency has passed, you probably didn't need it. So go ahead and put it back in the freezer. See, that keeps you from doing a couple of things. Now, some of you are already thinking, well, I'll just fast track it. I'll put it in the microwave. Well, then you demagnetize it, and you're not even going to be able to use it. See, see you've, by, doing, by taking the certain measure, you've cut yourself off from being able to do something rash, being able to do something reactionary, and you can't do it anymore. This is what Jesus is talking about. Don't even let me be led there. He said somewhere else in the Sermon on the Mount, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out, throw it away. If your right hand offends you, cut it off and throw it into the fire. When it comes to sin and temptation, the kinds of things that separate you from the holy God who is your only hope, you had better get radical. You had better fight this stuff. Effective prayer seeks that holiness to be kept from things that will make me weak and keep me weak and be kept in the things that will make me stronger. So pray for the glory of God. Pray for the provision of God. Pray for the holiness of God. Finally, I would just say this. Pray in view of the power of God. Some of you may have a translation where the verse I'm about to read is actually in the body. Others may have one where it's footnoted at the bottom. You may be looking at a translation if you're looking at the one that I use every week. And it's not even there. And it says this, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, if you have a good translation of the Bible, it'll either be footnoted or it won't be there at all. And I'm going to tell you why. 
Don't get nervous. It was a textual variant that was added later after the original canon was put together. So this, when we're talking about this particular verse, we're not talking about something that was part of the original Bible. You say, well, then if it's not part of the Bible, why are you even quoting it? Well, the same reason I would quote C.S. Lewis, the same reason I would quote Billy Graham, because those who added it were seeking to bring you and me back to where this prayer starts. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. It's the power of God. It's a reminder that it would sort of be useless to pray to a powerless God. Useless. So this, like the beginning of Jesus' prayer, is this really simple statement of you are able. I've told this story multiple times here, and so if you're a, a, a long-time person at Covenant, just indulge me this, tell this story one more time. If you're new, and we got a lot of new folks, I think, I think it's been at least a year and a half or so since I told this story, but we had some dear friends of ours when we were in seminary, and they had this little girl named Emily. She's in her 20s now, so I'm really starting to get old, but she was like less than two when they came to visit us. We went to this restaurant in downtown Louisville, Kentucky, and there was a line, and there was this big glass out front, and there were people on the other side of that glass enjoying their meal, and Emily was just, she saw a stage, right? That wasn't a sidewalk anymore. It was a stage. So she started pirouetting and dancing and doing all kinds of stuff. So those people on the other side of that glass, they got their meal and they got entertainment. And, and we were watching this and really enjoying it. And I don't know what prompted me to do this, but just in a silly moment, I, I kind of hunched down like this. And I said, Emily, sweetheart, do you know how to get home from here? Now, think about this for a minute. We're in downtown Louisville, Kentucky, right in the middle of a traffic pattern that the locals call Spaghetti Junction. That should tell you everything you need to know. Okay? You can be living there years and still get lost. If you can manage to get yourself out to Interstate 64, you've got to go, you've got to know enough to go east to Lexington. Then you've got to get on I-75 south until you get to Knoxville, Tennessee, which feels like you're driving until you fall off the end of the earth. Then you've got to get on Interstate 40 east, not west. That'll take you the wrong way. Go out and into at the, the mountains of western North Carolina. Then you get on Interstate 26, which takes you across the state line into my home state, into Spartanburg. And then you've got to make a bunch of other twists and turns in order to get to this little girl's house. She's got no idea. She can't even cross the street without getting hit by a car. But when I said, do you know how to get home? She looked up at me and she went, uh-huh. Well, now she's piqued my curiosity. And I said, how do you get home? And without him, just reflexively, she just did this, reached up to her daddy. And said, when we, when we talk about this idea, what does it mean to say yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever? I might be in the middle of things I can't control. I may be in the middle of a, a world right now that I just can't escape. Uh, a lot of this stuff, by the way, if, I don't know if this will be helpful to any of you, but some of this is just culture shock for us. First time I saw an N95 mask on this continent, it freaked me out. It was back in March. It took my son to, to get his stuff cleaned out because they told him not to come back. We stopped at a rest area. And when I saw it, and I, I, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not telling you this is right. I'm just, this is, this is where I went. I said, that this is not Asia. Why are we doing this? That, that was the first thought in my mind. It wasn't right. Why did I have that thought? Why did it freak me out? It's because I'm used to going over there 
and seeing those kinds of things. I'm used to being in another culture. Some people aren't used to another culture, so when they go somewhere where the the language is different, the practices are different, and and things aren't like you're accustomed to, and you start washing your hands repeatedly, and you get irritable, and you get sometimes even downright mean, and we've even had people on mission trips, and we've had a discipline, not here, thankfully, but, but in the past because because culture shock got the best of them and we did it compassionately pull them aside you got to get a hold of yourself what's going on with you and most of the time it's culture shock it, it there's only so much of that change that we can take against things that we've already been culturally conditioned to and so what's happened with this pandemic the culture we live in has changed and we can't get away from it you can't get on a plane and go back home you are home what do we do in the middle of that? How, how do the people of God make it through that? How do the people of God model how to come out on the other side of that stronger? How do we do it? Prayer. Prayer. In the way that Jesus prescribes it. In this way. Listen to these words from 1 John chapter 5. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So first, it brings us into alignment with God, his desires, his agenda. I surrender everything to him and then not before. At that moment and not before, I'm ready to pray in a way that moves his hand that changes the world. And so a response to a God-centered, God-saturated, God-glorifying prayer is the means by which God has chosen to accomplish his purposes in the world. I think at this moment, we need to learn a little bit more about this, don't you? And so the purpose of prayer isn't, maybe this is another misconception, it's not to change God. The purpose of prayer is to change everything else starting with me, starting with you. And the kind of prayer Jesus has been talking about, that prayer changes things. Some people, again, I, I, Pastor, I don't think I could ever do that. Why? I, I don't have proper grammar. Well, neither did Dwight L. Moody, the famed evangelist of the 19th and the early 20th century. You know what they said about Dwight L. Moody? He slaughtered the king's English, but he knew the king. Let me tell you, between those two, Jesus values that second one a whole heck of a lot more. You don't need to be eloquent. I don't like to pray in front of people. Well, you're not talking to them. You're not. And the most eloquent words are never as powerful as someone who simply and completely surrenders themselves to the Lord. And if that's where your heart is, if you can get your heart by the grace of God at that place, I'm going to promise you this on the authority of his word. I don't care about your sentence structure. I don't care about your eloquence. I don't care about anything else. If that's where your heart is, there is a God on the throne who cannot wait to hear from you. Let's learn how to talk to him in a better, in a powerful, and a more effective way over these next few weeks. Will you join me as we start that right now? Lord Jesus, even as I pray, there is that temptation as a pastor to put a higher value on eloquence than on where the actual power is. And so, Lord, would you, 
would you just rip that out of our hearts and our mindset and the ways that we have been conditioned to think about this exercise? I pray, Father, that you would raise up other fathers and mothers and the children that come after them to become people of prayer. Lord, that we would be so intimately connected with you that we would be so unconditionally surrendered to you that everything we speak is a word from you. That every action we take is exemplary of the very values of the kingdom that will one day come and crush every other kingdom. And may we find power, raw, unseething, unlimited power from that experience. Lord, I, I just pray for people to gain confidence today, not in themselves or in their ability, but in the God to whom they speak. And Lord, I know and I, I have no doubt there are prayers of the people in front of me right now on people on the other side of that camera. They, maybe they could never get up under these lights and put this mic on and do what I do, but I know because I've pastored too many of them that their prayers have been far more effective than my own. Father, I just pray that they would step up, that we, all of us, would learn from these brothers and sisters, and that we would become the people that you, through a moment in history like this, mean for us to be. May we talk less. May we open our ears. May we listen. And may we learn, Father, to be those people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.